Welcome to Steam Powered, where I have conversations with women in Steam to learn a little bit about what they do and who they are. I'm your host, Michelle Ong. My guest today is Abby Mitchell. Abby is an environmental educator and author of A Hollow is a Home, a non-fiction book about Australian animals that call hollows home, which has been shortlisted for two awards for children's literature. Join us as we talk about Abby's passion for environmental education, tree hollows for wildlife, and the Jane Goodall Institute's Roots and Shoots Youth Program. Good morning, Abby. Thank you so much for joining me today on Steam Pod. It's wonderful to be able to speak to you today. Thank you. It's very exciting to be here, Michelle. Thank you. Ah, yeah, really looking forward to this. It's fantastic. So you are currently an environmental educator. You are a writer now as well. And you know, you're doing a lot of really great stuff with A Hollow is a Home for your book, talking about Australian biodiversity and the Jane Goodall Roots and Shoots Youth Program. But you know, you were telling me that you weren't always in this space. So what happened before? Uh, well, formerly I was actually a, a set dresser um, and a stylist. So I used to work in film and television and mostly TV commercials because that was a quick quick turnaround for as a freelancer. So um, that was that was what I was doing. And I was actually pretty good at it and I actually really liked it. But the end result of being so creative, so making props or creating a whole set and, you know, it really is a creative thing. Um, would be a TV commercial for some product that I really didn't care about, you know. And, you know, after years of doing it and really questioning what I was doing, there came one day when my little boy was in the back of the car, we were off to do um, some sourcing, which was literally finding all the props that I needed for a lounge room. So we're talking the sofa, the couch, the prints, the pictures, the cup of tea, the, every single thing I had to find collate in my head because it was pre you know pre mobile phone and then have all of it shipped to the location so and then ready for um to shoot a commercial on the day and hope that the client liked it so you know it was a lot of work and so i had my little boy in the back and off we were going i needed to take him with me because um i can't even remember i might have been breastfeeding at the time but anyway so imagine taking a little kid to the shops at the best times hard work Taking a little kid when you are trying to source a lounge room in umpteen different places all over Sydney is oh, yeah. much bigger ask. So anyway, so he started crying about 20 minutes into the journey and I thought, oh, what am I doing? This isn't the future I want for him. I don't want to be promoting consumerism. I want to be promoting the environment. I don't want to do this anymore. So I rang my husband and I said, oh, you know what? I'm going to pull the pin on this job, knowing full well that if I did, that would be the end of my career because that was 90% of my work was through this one client. Yeah. And I did. I rang him and said, I'm really sorry. I knew there was enough time they'd find someone else. So I wasn't completely yeah. leaving him in the work. <laughs> but um, that wouldn't be very professional. But, um, yeah, but I did. And, and then that was the end of that. And so I thought, right, okay, reinvent. So I went to uni, I did a degree in biodiversity conservation. I was already dabbling in environmental education anyway. I was doing stuff at schools um, and sort of helping out. And I was, I mean, I live in the bush, so you can hear a gazillion cicadas. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, that was the, the beginning of a complete change of career. And I haven't looked back. Oh, that's brilliant. So. You, know, you, you said that when you were, you know, reached that moment that it was, I want to, I want to, you know, help 
the environment. So why specifically that? What What's that passion there? Well, I grew up in the bush um, and so I've always known the bush and I've always understood the bush because I'm living, I still live in the bush. I'm living in it. I see the cycles. I see the animals at different times. I understand um, the species I actually share my territory with. So if something comes in to our space, you know, collectively, we all know about it. You know, the birds start going off and I think, what's going on? And have a look out there and there's a wedge-tailed eagle or something going across. So, you know, you get really in tune with, when the flowers are going to be coming out, I know if they're a bit late or if they're a bit early, or you know, you, you just, just, you just absorb it. Um, and I realised when I started environmental teaching that kids so often have no idea. So, for example, I was working for national parks, taking kids on um, school excursions in the bush, and I had kids say to me one particular day, this little girl said, um, pointing to some rocks, "Are they real rocks?" I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> what? That just blew my mind. And there were kids wondering when they'd see the monkeys. And there were kids who, when we had to do soil samples, actually asked where to get the soil from, not where on the ground to get it, but expecting a bag from Bunnings, you know. So, you know, there's such a huge divide between what I just accepted as relatively normal, sort of understanding the bush and understanding nature. And kids that really need who want to probably understand it but just don't so that was some a big part of writing the book I think trying to oh, make wow, it so yeah. they can understand it definitely and it, it's it's so interesting to see the way that they actually do perceive things as well because you know when we look at the way that they're taught everything's kind of mushed together at an early age so now you do have your monkeys next to your wombats and you know they they don't have that distinction about how things are separate and how we've got different ecosystems and different biodiversities. So yeah, it, it is a very interesting perspective. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So why specifically were you so focused on hollows? Because, you know, that's a very important thing as part of the Australian biodiversity. And, you know, you hear about it, or at least I've been hearing about it a lot more recently. And, you know, you, it's a very specific topic to want to address. Yeah, look, it is, but actually talking about tree hollows was the glue to allow me to talk about a whole bunch of different topics and a lot of different animals, but they've got this one thing in common, being their need for a tree hollow. So, um, you know, in my preliminary, my initial research, um, I um, found that there were, at least were recorded, 303 animal species that needed tree hollows. Um, that was from a book put out by Linda Mayer and, and Gibbons in 2002. And it was a book about tree hollows for land managers, um, more so academic than, than not. And um, anyway, so, you know, there's 303 animals there, right there, that I could talk about. Um, and they're very diverse. You know, you've got lizards and different sorts of mammals, gliders, microbats, um, tree rats, um, and, and various birds, cockatoos, down to small um I can't think. Um, <laughs> finches, for example, like the Gordian finch. Um, so you've got a huge range of animal species that have different needs, different food requirements, different habitats, um, different breeding cycles. Um, they're even, they're even um, necessary in the environment for different reasons. Some might be a pollinator or a seed disperser or, um, you know, whatever it is. But they all have this common need for a tree hollow. So it gave me that scope. Um, and to investigate 
quickly going back, when I was at university, um, what I what I realised was that what I was learning, I actually already knew. I didn't realise I knew it to that degree, but I knew it from having lived in it. So what I was doing was um, intellectualising something that was that I already knew. It was intrinsic. Um, so it was just about being able to show those scientific principles and practices, but in a more practical way, so that kids could actually understand why all of those things are important. To extend on that, um, when I was, I guess what I needed to do initially was to work out what the themes were that I wanted to put into my book. So, for example, the fact animals, many sorts of animals at least, have quite defined territory, that they have interspecies competition, that they've got competition between themselves, that they've got niche diets, that they've got, you know, very fussy um, requirements, they've got particular breeding cycles, and if any of these elements are missing, aside from a tree hollow, then they can't, they just can't exist. So what I did do was I went through all the animal species that were at that point known to need a tree hollow, and I kind of, um, I allocated them different themes, I guess, so that when I was writing the book, I knew where I was going to weave them in. But what was really cool, because um, obviously I had to research all these animals before I could understand how it would best work and how to build a picture throughout the book. Um, but what was really cool is I managed to increase the list of them known species to use hollows from 303 to 345, just in my That's research. amazing. I mean, that's not to say I discovered they needed a tree hollow, no. but that was <laughs> realising through all this research that I could create a much bigger list. So, And that was really cool. I liked doing that. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, that's, you know, 345 animals is a lot of um, opportunity to provide examples of different animals and why they exist and how they need different things. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, uh, yeah, when I was actually doing the reading up on the tree hollows, I did see the wiki page and it said 303 and I said, but the book says there's more. <laughs> I know, but um, well, we'll see if it catches on. But certainly, you know, I, I guess a big part of writing any book, but particularly you know, when you want credibility, you've got to make sure that all your references are right. And so everything's cross-referenced. And I can promise you, every single one of those 345 animals, <laughs> somewhere in scientific literature, it says they use tree hollows. So <laughs> not making it up. <laughs> I was went also in part of my research. A lot of the material that did come up when you do look up tree hollows is mostly Australian. Like there's not very much uh, information about animals that need hollows outside of Australia for some reason or I don't know whether my searching was just not very good but you know I, I saw that there were a few like the, there's a few bears and you know definitely a lot of insects that use those and you mentioned them in your book as well so that's why I was wondering like that's very specific to Australia I thought that was very unusual that you know it even though the issues around why it's so important to preserve these habitats for them is you know it, it should be common globally you don't really see a lot of material about it outside the Australian biodiversity. Well, I think possibly, Michelle, one of the big differences between our hollows and um, hollows overseas, obviously the same processes still exist, you know, all, all around the world where, where you've got insects and, um, and fire and rain and, you know, decay and all that stuff. But we don't have woodpeckers in Australia and um, woodpeckers are found in a lot of different countries around the world and they actually oh, create... Yeah the hollows that many animals end up using you know oh. later on in the season or uh, after they've finished breeding for the year so 
some woodpeckers actually create a new hollow each year. So there's, you know, this constant turnover of hollows and constant availability. Um, but because we don't have woodpeckers, there's not really anything in Australia apart from the odd cockatoo that might um, create a hollow um, if it can. But I might actually witness them do that where they chomp away at the rotten wood and create um, or even expand it if they don't create one from scratch. Essentially, no animals in Australia make hollows. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. So, which which then means that a hollow takes a lot longer to develop. It's not just a quick yeah. process of a bird chipping it out. Um, and and there you have it. So then it can take up to, uh, look, anywhere between 40 was the youngest hollow that I found in my research, up to 350 years, depending on, obviously, the size of the tree and where it is and all that kind of stuff, the process involved. Definitely. That's very interesting. So, yeah, so that's I guess that's why it's so important that you're bringing this up because it's not like it's naturally occurring in, you know, the, the average animal who needs its lifetime. Or it's, or it's grandkids' lifetime, you know. Oh, it's grandkids' so, lifetime, exactly. When, when, you think, um, when you think, say, a powerful owl, which is the, obviously our biggest um, owl species, and it needs a hollow that's enormous for itself. Yeah. And it's, um, so already it needs to be in a tree that's, you know, got a girth wider than the screen, and, um, or at least what I can see, and... Um, and then it takes time for that hollow itself to develop within the tree. So, you know, it can be um, 100 or 200 or 300 years old, that, that particular hollow. Um, yeah. But, I mean, obviously hollows, you know, little little creatures need small hollows and progressively they need larger ones. And so they're, they're important at any time. Definitely. That's great. So, yeah, because we've, you know, I guess in the urban areas it's, it's a problem because there are going to be very few hollows and the animals aren't going to be living there. But... Because you know, out in the bush, you know, you get your you get clearing, you get farmland and expansion. So how how do we mitigate the fact that we're losing all of these habitats in these natural environments? Yeah, that I mean, that's a heartbreaking question, isn't it? And I think um, first and foremost, it's people understanding, at least bringing it back to hollows, understanding the importance of hollows. So so often, hollows are in in large dead trees. Um, or they might be in a dead branch within a tree. And so, and frequently they're cut down because people think that they're no longer, you know, no longer viable, so I'll get rid of it. Or they think it's dangerous, particularly in, um, in sort of urban areas where there's the risk of a, a limb falling from a tree, for example. Um, but even there, what you can do rather than chopping down the, the limb is plant underneath it and create more habitat stop people walking underneath it. So you're stopping the foot traffic if, for example, it's in a school or something um, and save a tree that way. Um, but it's all about education, the whole thing. Habitat loss, more broadly, is all about education and people understanding, oh, you know, why we need animals, why we need the, the ecosystem services that they provide. And, you know, from pollination to... Um, to clean water, to, you know, fresh air, all the different reasons why we need animals and trees and plants. <laughs> yeah, everything. The whole yeah, biodiversity. Everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's definitely very interesting. And, you know, the fact that, you know, it's, it's hard enough, as you said, like the kids already go, oh, this dirt, where does this dirt come from? Is this a rock, real rock? And then having to, you know, bring them to this reality of actually we're losing all of these things too and we need to work on trying to you know make this 
you know, keep this environment and keep this habitat available for all these animals, because, you know, it, it's such a big leap from learning about just the basics of nature to having to preserve it. Absolutely right. And I mean, for example, with the fires that we experienced last summer, you know, such a huge area was yes. lost. And, you know, I frequently hear people say, it's all right, the animals will come back. And of course they will in time, but in such a large area like that, my first question is, well, where are they going to come Where from? will they live? First, because, you know, in any great rush, um, because much was lost. Um, and that, that, that is really scary. It is. Yeah, that, because we, you know, humans have lost their homes, but the animals have lost their homes as well. And uh, it's not really as easy to recover their homes. Well, it's absolutely not. And I often hear that sort of thing with, um, with clearing generally, you know, when there's urban development. And I've been at council meetings where people have said, oh, it's okay, the animals will just move. And I think, well, actually, some might, but they've got to compete wherever they go. It's not, it's not that simple. They is there going to be the correct habitat left for them? Are they going to be able to get there or are they going to be squashed on a road or what sort of connectivity is there and what sort of breeding opportunities, all those things. So um, these are the sorts of things that I'm hoping by educating kids um, and so that they know this as they're growing up, they can take this information into whatever they do in life, whether they're a scientist or an accountant or a developer or whatever it is, they just have an understanding of that need to look after what's around us yeah just having a bit more balance to understand the impact of all of our actions and all of our decisions that's right yeah we love animals and actually want to save them and their environments for that reason as much as you know those push reasons of humankind <laughs> well definitely i mean it's it's all kind well, it's all balanced right so you know all all we, it all, we all here together and we have to kind of make that all work so yeah is that the kind of thing that is being done with the roots and shoots program because you know you're so big on trying to make sure that they become aware of all of these things and encouraging all these youth programs and it sounds like you know that's a perfect balance for you <laughs> working with the jane gordon institute yeah look i'm really lucky aren't i um i i, I made the right choice that day in the car i think definitely <laughs> switch but um yeah, well, I mean, Roots and Shoots is, is global. So it's in over 50 countries around the world. But really what it is, is, um, you know, Roots and Shoots, it's a bit like having your own cheer squad. So anything that um, a child wants to do that's proactive in the environment, so anything that's going to promote animals, people, or the environment, because it's about human needs as well and, and um, equality and poverty and addressing those sorts of things too. But... Um, you know, we're there to help support them to find an issue in their local area and address it. So whether they're doing a beach clean or whether they're, um, you know, creating a pollinator garden, but with the underlying principle that it's about acting, acting locally and having a global impact. So across those 50 countries, there's hundreds of roots and shoots groups. Hopefully, we're one big community actually making a difference. Yeah, so that's that, incredible. That is yeah. Yeah, so it is, and it is really cool because so often, um, you know, I get the privilege of seeing what all these different projects are all over the place, and they are fantastic. Like one of the schools that I just love at the moment down in Victoria, they had an issue with wombats coming into their school and digging, oh. up, digging up their gardens. And so, you know, 
an, an immediate response would obviously be, oh, let's put a fence around it so the wombats can't come in. But that's not looking at the big picture. That's not thinking about how they might need, you know, that environment, how they might cross it to get to other parts of their territory, but other food sources to find a mate, all that stuff. So rather than doing that, they have, um, they're in the process now of raising some of their garden beds so that the, the wombats can't dig straight into them. Um, and they're also looking at perhaps putting in some wombat gates um, in oh, the, nice. of the school so that they can sort of be a little bit more careful about where they go into the school and where they don't because obviously you don't want a child falling in a wombat hole. Um, <laughs> exactly. Where did, where did Jimmy go? Oh! <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, so, I mean, that's really cool. But, you know, there are, there are kids out there doing um, planting trees specifically for squirrel gliders and creating nesting boxes for them and all sorts of pollinator gardens for different bee species and butterfly species and um, putting in the host plants for the butterfly caterpillars and um, all of that, so frog bogs, and um, but also feeding this information into citizen science projects and things like that. So um, we at um, Roots and Shoots are really, you know, we, we, we love to collaborate. We're very, very happy to say to our Roots and Shoots people, hey, go and be part of the bird count and, you know, be part of Clean Up Australia Beach Clean with your local council or whatever it is because it's, it's all important. So it's just about, you know, getting out there and doing it. Yeah, well, it, it's all about, you know, commu service to the community in, you know, whatever capacity that you can do. Yeah, and, and often people just they're overwhelmed and they don't know where to start, but that's the whole point. It's about finding something that you can do that, that isn't too overwhelming. I mean, in, you know, even a day's worth of picking up things on a beach or um, planting a few trees, it's all good stuff. So, it is. Uh, and people just generally, they get their confidence and they get a better understanding of the impact that they can have and, um, and they make community connections and that's fun. And so, yeah, it's a win-win. Yeah, it definitely is. So how do you, because a lot of these programs are run through schools and, you know, smaller groups, but how do you, how do they come up with these ideas for the projects that they want to run? Well, we really encourage them to look immediately around them. So, um, you know, I guess at an academic level, you could look at, for example, the survey of the animal species that live in your immediate area. So one of the programs we're about to run next year is called um, Rewild Your School Habitat. Um, and that's about using the Atlas of Living Australia to identify um, animal species that have been recorded in your, in your immediate area and then working out from that what they need and putting it in. So whether you need to um, put in, you know, specific food trees, so for example, some casuarinas for glossy black cockatoos or, um, you know, whatever it is. Um, once you understand what you need to do, it's much, much easier, of course. Um, but it could be just really basic stuff. They might, the kids might realise that the, um, the ways of recycling in the school aren't quite as good as they could be. Or they might look at palm oil use, um, in the products in their school canteen. Um, they might simply put in a veggie garden and, and a composting system, all that sort of stuff. So yeah. um, we really let them decide what they want to do. And we're very, very happy to help come up with ideas. Um, yeah, but it's, you know, it's got to come from the heart before you can physically get into it, doesn't it? And I think motivation follows action a lot of the time. Definitely. And, you know, 
for, I guess, some of the older kids, there's also the National Youth Leadership Council. So how does that work? Um, that's a selective process. So we've just, the last cohort of um, 22 um, leaders just graduated last week. Um, but and next time around, we're still looking at how we do that. We might actually increase it somewhat. Um, stay tuned for that. Um, <laughs> the idea is that we are giving them different opportunities to build their leadership skills and their confidence and their understanding of um, environmental issues. Um, so, for example, they might work on a campaign, um, what we call the Tuft campaign, which is Thumbs Up for Turtles. That's about um, addressing single-use plastics in the environment and you know, into the sea and whatnot by looking at marine creatures, but really it's about you know, anything that's impacted by plastics. Um, but that yeah. was a, a National Youth Leadership Council um, initiative um, a couple of years ago. But they also have webinars where they um, develop leadership skills through um, some of our partners. Um, they um, get practice in writing, for example, some of them contribute, contributed to a magazine last year. Um, all that sort of stuff. So um, developing their own programs, mentoring younger people is a big part of it. So they get the opportunity to go into schools. Um, some of them will be um, providing the Rewild Your School Habitat workshops next year as well. So, oh, nice. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of different opportunities there and um, it's a program that just gets better and better every year. So we're looking forward to we're about to start planning it for the next um, cohort which will be around about June. Yeah and it's so great that you know they're getting so many opportunities to you know take on additional responsibilities and you know to take initiative to do things. It's 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 such an interesting way of getting them to be passionate and also you know take charge and do the sorts of things that you don't normally do at that age. That's right and also a big part of it is um, being able to network with each other. So um, you know, eco-anxiety, for example, is a really big issue with young people and, and also that sense that um, that you don't know anybody else like you who has the same, you know, desperate need to help the environment. So this is a really great way for them to connect with each other and, and they actually do collaborate quite a bit and they do presentations for each other of things that they're passionate about or, or um, campaigns they might have worked on or stuff that they're doing at uni because often they, well, they are now uni students, they will be going forward. Um, and that many of them have some form of environmental degree that they're doing, um, but not always. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, I mean, they, so they've already got that, um, you know, those common interests, I guess, um, so that it's a really good way of building um, friendships and connections that then can go out, you know, as alumni, they, they can still assist groups and shoots and they can still work to each other and they, with each other and they can still also think about things when they're in a career space as well. Yeah, such a great network to be able to develop when you're at that age and just starting to come into your own. Yeah, no, it's yeah, um, yeah, that's really lovely. <laughs> yeah, so you mentioned eco anxiety. So I'm, I've I've vaguely heard that term before, and I have an idea of what that means. But what what is eco anxiety? Oh well, I guess the way I interpret it, and maybe other people think of it differently, is just that great overwhelming sense of doom and your ability to to do anything fast enough in particular so anybody i know oh well, not anybody but many people i know who work in, as an environmental educator um, including some of the youth leaders that i just mentioned there's that great sense of urgency we've got to do it now we've got to do it now 
and you know we can't do it fast enough because the statistics keep coming out that show that you know the climate's warming and this much area has been destroyed and this many species are threatened all that stuff and it is so overwhelming and if you focus solely on that you know i'm sure michelle you feel the same you just go what have we done what have we done yeah but um and 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 also criticism for being a greenie, you know that that still exists, and I, that blows yes. my mind. I can't understand people that think that like that. I can't understand why they would think that being a greenie has a stigma attached to it. Actually, exactly. Really, one of these days it will be reversed. It will, have, <laughs> it will have to be. Scientists will be the champions of the world instead of filthy rich people, and um and the environment will be the most important thing. But you know, I hope that's in my lifetime, but I don't doubt it really. Um, yeah, so, but yeah, so from that, eco anxiety is a really big thing. And I guess it's at least being able to network with other people who, yes, do feel that, but also have hope. Because if you don't have hope and if you don't see the positive things that are going on, and like Wombat School that I mentioned, or, you know, kids who are celebrating what they're doing, um, that's what gives me real hope. And you know, I do um, I do workshops in schools regularly. I do you know um, a couple of weeks usually, and mostly they're about native bees. And in that program, kids learn about native bees, all the different species. Well, not all, but a lot of the different species. There's <laughs> over two thousand, so they don't learn about them all. But yeah. um, and and so they learn about the importance of bees. They learn about you know pollination. They learn about um, the threats to bees. And at the end of it, they find and learn about the solutions to looking after native bees, including creating habitat. And in our workshop, we create an insect hotel that's based on you know, rigorous science as well. Um, and so by the end of it, they've learned all about it. They know what to do to help bees. They know how cool they are, because I've just shown them. And they're actually <laughs> really into it. You know, I go from a bunch of kids who are kind of, bees now let's see where this goes to the end going yeah bees yeah, i bees. love bees and, <laughs> and they come back from lunch break and you know tell me what they just saw in the playground all that kind of stuff um and that is where the hope is so just by giving people that you know opening their their world showing them how cool nature is how they can help how and making them want to help importantly um you know, that's, that's where the, a good future lies for all of us. Yeah, definitely. You can't unlearn that stuff. Once you know that stuff, you can't unlearn it. You can't ignore no. it. You know, you know it's all stuff. sitting back there, yeah. Yeah. You know, if you start destroying habitat, you're going, going hey, what about those bees I just learned about? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, you know, it, you know, we're talking about eco-anxiety, but it's also giving people actionable items, things that are within the realm of what they're able to help with. And, you know, starting from there and giving them something that they can do to alleviate some of that anxiety. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. I mean, um, it's easy just to go, I don't know, I can't do anything. But when you realise that some of these things are actually pretty simple and you don't even necessarily need to leave your house to do it. I mean, it's just about, <laughs> about recycling or thinking about just your general impact, thinking about the chemical use in your house, for example. You know, do you really need to spray those spiders? Do you really need to spray those ants? I don't think so. So you, know, <laughs> um, you don't necessarily need to know the huge um, 
argument against the chemicals that are in some of those products, even though it's, you know, I personally like to know all that stuff. But as long as you yeah. understand that, you know, cause and effect, that's the main message. Yeah, and that, that, is, that is a big thing because, you know, it's about consequences. And a lot of people forget about consequences and correlation and causation, all those little basic tenets of science. <laughs> Look, it is a lot to think about. And, and I guess, you know, in writing a book, like what I just have, yeah, um, it's, really, it's really easy to go, oh, woe is me. Look at all these threatened species and they're dying because of you. you <laughs> this and this and this and this. And you've got to stop that. You can't do that because people just go, oh, I didn't mean to. You know, I don't, I don't really understand. But if you do explain it in a positive way and look at this really cool animal and this is why they're so cool and, oh, my gosh, I really dig this animal. I think you should really enjoy learning about it as well. Um, it's a good positive way to go about doing things. It is. And, you know, you're, you're helping to broaden their horizons and, you know, it's not just about doom and gloom and it's about, you know, as you said, hope, giving them options, giving them ideas of, you know, where we can go and the kind of little impacts that can lead to bigger ones down the road. Oh, very positive. <laughs> have to be positive. I, I look, you know, certainly it's very easy to read just about any article about a threatened species, name it, name a species, yeah. and you go, oh... Oh, not another one. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's not it's not very proactive. Yes, know all of that. Yes, we need to understand all of that. But we also need to understand the solutions too. Yeah, and when you see a lot of these articles, because I guess the way media is structured now, it's always this has happened. It's terrible gloom, and not many of them say this is what's being done to help it. This is what's being done to change things. So you, you end up just thinking, oh, it's just all sad or, and it's all terrible and no one's doing anything about it. And that sort of thing does encourage discourse for the eco-anxiety, but it doesn't, it's not productive and it doesn't help people understand that there are little things being done to help make an impact on the problems that they're seeing. Yeah, and really big things being done. I mean, there's some yes. great stuff going on out there and um, really positive. It gives me huge hope, not just small projects, but large-scale projects through different organisations and um, different education programs and you know, conservation work that's going on. So, yeah, I, I agree. I think that sort of stuff needs to be far more, um, far more promoted, you know, whether yeah. it's a news item or a... I don't know. I mean, obviously you can see all that stuff if you know where to look and you want to look for that. Exactly. And not many people do because they, they look at the headlines, you know, articles these days, long form is anything more than what, 300 words. So <laughs> it's not as though people are maintaining the attention span to be able to go look deeper. They, Yeah, we need to be able to make it a bit more accessible and digestible so that people are seeing all these good things as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's why they need to read my book, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. They need to read right. and, and all the books like it, not just mine. I don't mean it like that. But, you know, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of cool stuff out there for kids who, um, you know, with, with teachers that are aware and realise that you can actually teach an awful lot of the curriculum by using environmental examples. I mean, talking about maths, you can write persuasive text for English, you can do art projects. 
a whole lot. So you can actually tie a lot of that environmental and sustainability message into an awful lot that we do. And just regular practices at schools, you know. I, I'm I'm still amazed that that schools aren't saying, don't wrap your lunches in glad wrap. You know, my kids who one's 19 now and the other one's 15, never ever did they have a lunch wrapped in glad wrap or anything like that. We had little containers and you know, back and forth and back and forth and you know, the whole school life. So you don't need to wrap things up. You, 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 there are really easy ways to, you know. Reduce to, and, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe that can be another school project for a different school. <laughs> and it is, and it totally is, yeah. I yeah. yeah. But, you know, I'm just surprised that there's not more of it. Yeah, because it, it's a fairly small thing that you can do and yeah. it has a wider impact. Especially, I mean, you look at how many kids are at schools, how many lunches you need to do every day. Yeah, it's a small thing that can lead to big changes. But even, for example, um, the, the books that, it, that that we buy for our kids to do their schoolwork in, they all be recycled paper. But, I mean, it shouldn't even be a choice. And seriously, if you look at a recycled textbook compared to, you know, whatever the other one is, a non-recycled one, they look almost the same. There's very little colour difference, like a kid would care anyway. And, you know, so why wouldn't you? Yeah, and frankly, like, I mean, I, I'm a bit of a hoarder, so I still have some of my stuff from school. But, you know, a lot of that stuff just ends up binned anyway. So practically, you're not going to be keeping it. You're not expecting to hand this stuff down to generations to come. Anyway, uh, you know, when I'm in power, <laughs> and I'm in charge when... of the world, <laughs> yeah, everything These will be recycled. <laughs> this is my platform. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Well, and that's another thing I'm really keen to, you know, to promote science for both boys and girls, really. But it's really cool when I do a workshop and there's some kids in there that are just so into it because apart from doing the bees, I've also got over 200 um, preserved invertebrates that I take in that I've, I I collect dead insects and then I pin yeah. them. And, um, nice. But only dead ones that <laughs> kill them. And, uh, but I've got over 200 now. And so I take all of those in as well. And some of the kids just, they're blown away. Often they've never seen even things like cicadas and Christmas beetles that, you know, that so many of us grow up with and take for granted. And they've never seen that before. But there's, there are kids in there who you can just see that little spark. You can see that curiosity and they've got that intelligence. And they just, you know, a good scientist asks lots of questions, don't they, of course. So, and they're the ones I just love talking to them and answering as many of their questions as I can. <laughs> ask me a question, I would say, wow, I don't know the answer to that. I've never thought about that before. But I've got to find out. Oh, that's the best. Very Those cool. are the best ones. <laughs> yeah, they're the best ones, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. make me think. I like that. Yeah, I took my daughter to the WA Museum, which just reopened recently. And they've got this entire section and they've got all these little drawers that pull out, which the kids love because they're all kind of kid height with different levels. And, you know, they've got the boards with the bugs and all these other things like, ah, oh, these are so pretty. It's like, yeah, they are very pretty. You know, these are the ones that we get around here. So, wow, that's so cool. I didn't know that because we don't see them. And, you know, we, we don't necessarily look for them. They just are. <laughs> Well, that's, I guess, the next step is looking for them. Even literally giving a kid a magnifying glass and saying, go out into your backyard, regardless of whether it's a balcony or, you know, bushscape, see what you find. So yeah. suddenly it's a whole new world. Exactly. 
all these yeah. things that you just take for granted because they're smaller than you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So we'll definitely move on to those other questions now. We're getting close to that hour. Um, so, yeah. So we know that we've got heaps of interest, but what hobby or interest do you have that is most unrelated to your field of work? Well, I paint. Um, I paint. Um, I paint often big landscapes, but I also paint um, animals. I love painting animals because I learn so much about them. So, for example, we um, hand raised a magpie um, when I was with oh. a um, wildlife rescue group quite a few years ago. This little magpie was three days old when it fell out of its nest. Its parents didn't want to reclaim it despite us trying, so we ended up hand raising it, which was just the best experience. I loved it because, well, I didn't realise until then that magpies, and now I know all of them, have incredible personalities. So this little bird was just, um, you know, it would play with you, it would talk to you, it would hang out with you. We ended up um, co-parenting with magpies on our property. So at one point, the female magpie, not not this little magpie's mum, decided to feed it. And we'd been feeding Tiki, his name was, I don't know if it was a boy, but Tiki, um, what do you call him, mealworm, you know, regular. Yeah. Things like that. And Tiki was getting bigger and bigger. And then one day this female magpie came, came along and she had an, an enormous cicada, like one of the biggest cicadas in Australia, in her beak. And I, Tiki was allowed to kind of roam around a little bit, you know, supervised as he was getting yeah. older. And <laughs> And fed him, and he, you know, opened his beak, and she shoved this entire thing in. <laughs> and my kids and I were all standing there, going, "Oh my god, she's going to kill him!" <laughs> but it was fine. And from from then on, she kind of started co-parenting, and it was amazing because, for oh, example, wow. one day um, they were hanging out together, and she made this call that I hadn't heard before. And I thought, "Oh, what's going on?" And I raced outside to have a look. And saw Peaky like sneaking and hiding behind a bush. And I thought, wow. And then I looked up and there was a bird of prey above. Oh. And it was just, you know, it was something I could never, ever teach Peaky, but she did. And so that was such an eye opener to watch, you know, just watch animal behavior in that way and to have a relationship with an animal as well. But anyway, like getting back to the painting, <laughs> like painting, I did a painting of Peaky and it's, a, you know, it's massive. It's just this head really um and he sat on top of the painting while i was painting it which was great oh, fun nice. and in fact sometimes he'd grab my paintbrush and run away with it and then it was a bit of a game to come back but anyway cool. you know i learned things about a magpie painting that, that i didn't realize just the way their eyebrows are and their eyelashes and these little lumps that go underneath their eye and in fact they've got these little kind of whiskers right here that i'd never really noticed in that much yeah. detail but you can't paint something like that unless you really look in detail so yeah um so that's really fun i like doing that and i've painted um things like um flying foxes and just i love looking at the way their fur kind of falls in different directions or the light hits them or the expression on their face or um all that kind of stuff so that's oh that's, that's wonderful um, that's a big a big passion of mine but i don't get enough time to do it but i do really like it <laughs> Oh, that's beautiful. That, that's a great hobby. Yeah. I, yeah. I love art. Just again, no time to do it either. Yeah. What do you do? Yeah. So general art, but I, I do sketching 
and I, I like watercolors because they're a little bit more portable <laughs> um, a bit more easy to pack up and put away when I need to very quickly um, and I've always wanted to do oils and pastels it's always been a thing that I wanted to give a go I'm not very good but also because I haven't practiced so yes. it, it's just yeah it's just nice like um <laughs> It had been year, like it's usually years between when I actually get to properly pull stuff out. And once my husband saw me like water, doing watercolors in my book, and he said, "You can do that." It's like, yes, I can. It is a thing that I have been able to do. I just don't do it very often. <laughs> oh wow! So he'd never seen you do it. No, he hadn't. He said that was a few years ago. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So yes, the painting is something I love to do. Um, and another thing I do. Mm, predominantly because I use them for my work is I make models. So I've, I've got one here to show you. <gasps> yeah. Oh, wow. So That yeah. looks really good. It's so much fun. You know, like, it's a teddy bear fur I tell the kids. And you yeah. can give it a little scratch. So this is um, this one of my bees. I've got two. I've got two that is insane. <laughs> so are <laughs> they like plushies? Beg your pardon? Are they like plushy bees or like uh, teddy bear bees? Oh, or are they hard? Oh, no, they're hard. Okay. Yeah, they've got they look so good. armature and they've got um, some of them are paper mache in parts. Uh, so stuff. detailed. Well, you know, kids kids really relate to this because they've learned about bees at school, even at least through me, and, you know, suddenly they can see that it's got really has got four wings and six legs and five eyes. Yeah. So, That's great. Yeah, and these little guys, these are little... Probably a bit small, but these are little micro bats. Yeah, but I've made a bunch of those, they're really fun. So That's they'll good. go inside um, existing real tree hollows, like bits that I've found. Um, oh, sort of nice, by, you know, arborists and things to show how micro bats use tree hollows and things like that. Oh, that's cool. That's a very practical demonstration. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's, that's right. Rather than just words or a photo, when you actually see things and you can touch them and, you know, it yeah. just sinks in a little better. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, and it's nice with a lot of these things, it's good that it's tactile because you can't really, you don't want to encourage them to go and, you know, feel up real hollows and stuff like that and get in the space of all these actual animals. Being able to let them see something up close where they can actually touch and explore, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, uh, yeah. But, I mean, you know, I love making them, so it's win-win for me. You know, <laughs> and, it's, and it's fun to make. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's such a great activity. Well, it is because it's a real puzzle. You have to work out how it's all going to fit together and what materials are going to work and how you're going to attach it and totally understand what the animal even looks like. So it's, that's fun because then I have to do a bit of research first. And yeah. yeah. And, I mean, like, yeah, the bee, like the bee itself was so detailed, especially the way that the limbs were articulated, or not quite articulated, but you can actually see the joints and the separation and segments. That's very cool. It is, but don't, don't show an entomologist because they'll just say, oh, no, 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 it's not right. I'm sure it's not, <laughs> not exactly right by a long stretch, but it's enough to give them. It, it's, it's, it's accurate enough to look legit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I know there's one. There's a little issue with one of them that it's not quite anatomically correct, and I was like, oh, I've struggled with it, but you know what? It'll it'll be fine. It'll be it'll pass. <laughs> well, if a kid pulls you up on it, that's when you're actually impressed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's probably right. Yeah. <laughs>
anyway, good excuse to make another one. Definitely, good excuse. <laughs> okay, and uh, which childhood book holds the strongest memories for you? Oh yeah, well, I was asked this, um, you know, as part of um, promoting my book actually. And when I started looking at all the books that did, um, that I, you know, that I really loved as a child, they all had an animal thing. I couldn't believe it. I, I could never really thought about. It. But um, I think one of the ones I've pulled out to show you, which I just love, is this, Dot and the Kangaroo. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, well, I mean, this was the movie adaptation of a book that's over 100 years old, which is amazing. Yes. I think that a story, you know, it can be that old, but still just so embraced by kids. And it's fantastic because it's about a little girl, Dot, and she gets lost in the bush and she ends up eating some, um, some sort of herb that allows her to understand animals talking. And that was just like the coolest thing. Like, my God, imagine if we could do that. We wouldn't be having these environmental issues at all, would we? Yes. Say, oh, yeah. Oh, you're right there. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, um, so, yeah, I really like that particular book. It's one of my favourites. Um, and But, you know, kids' books generally, there's some fantastic kids' books out now that, I mean, I'm always buying kids' books. I love kids' books. But one of my one of the ones I want to spruce at the moment is River Time by um, Trace Bella, and um, she's got a series of different books, and they are just just this lovely whimsical exploration of um, nature. You know, different characters, and they're going about their day, and there's different animals doing things, and it's just really lovely. So it's a nice yeah. way to you know get kids to see what's around them, I guess. Yeah, and I think about how all these other animals might interact, what their lives are like. Yeah. That's cool. So, yeah, yes, lovely. a theme. Yeah, <laughs> definitely a theme. <laughs> yeah. And lastly, what advice would you give someone who wants to do what you do and what advice should they ignore? Yeah, that's really tough, isn't it? Um, I would say listen to your heart firstly. So that day in the car when I just went, oh, I can't do this anymore. That was, that was my inner me screaming. And if I'd yeah. ignored that, I would have gone and had a reasonable career doing that and earning this money. So that, you know, I would still be struggling with the reasons why I didn't like it. And um, at the time, I was nearly 40 when I did that. I thought, I'm too afraid. I'm too old to start again. I thought I was there. I've got this client. You know, there were lots of reasons not to change that way. But... Now I'm so much happier and I've landed on my feet and I realised that I can and I realised that I, you know, I I am good at teaching people and all those things that I didn't really know until I took that leap of faith. So yes, I would suggest you know, do something that makes you feel good for good reasons and don't be scared just to go out and do it because really life's too short. So that would be my and what was the other part of the question? Yeah, what advice should they ignore? What would you What should you Ah, uh, well, you know, so often um, my, my daughter's just started a degree in marine biology. She's 19. And, you know, if you listen to the wrong people, you'll hear that there's not really that much of a work opportunity for that particular field for marine biologists. Um, and you think, well, what, what are you just not going to do it? I mean, you can't go through life saying, I'm not going to do that because other people don't think it's a good idea. I think you really just have to follow your heart. 
and follow your interests. And if you don't feel, have a career that you're interested in, that makes your heart sing, that doesn't feel like work, then you're not in a career. That's right. Yeah. So that would be good advice. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really good advice. And also, like, people say things like, oh, there's not a lot of work in this. But, you know, maybe there's not a lot of work in this right now. But by the time I graduate, by the time I'm in my early or mid stage of my career, they might be, or they might be something new that I can work with. And, you know, it's come up a lot where the other people I've spoken to, when they first started doing what they were doing, what they're doing now didn't exist. Or it was just at the True. start, the whole idea of what they're doing now was just a small idea. It hadn't, it just barely been conceived. And, you know, now they're midway through the careers and, you know, all these new fields are fully fledged or, you know, they're branching into new areas. And, you know, if, if you're interested in something, you don't know where it's going to take you. That's right. I mean, it's all about a journey, right? So Yeah. You know, like, like say, and, and the other, I guess the other bit of advice I would give is, you know, so often I'll, I'll come up against something and I'll think, well, I don't know how to do that. But rather than thinking, I don't know how to do that, there's my, you know, there's my out. I think, well, I don't know how to do that yet. And I will work out how to do it. I'll learn how to do it. I mean, not brain surgery, obviously, but, you know, <laughs> <laughs> something that's, that's feasible. So I think, well, I can go through my whole life saying, I don't know how to do it. And accept that or do something about it yeah so, give it a go yeah gotta give things a shot gotta you know take chances and just make sure that you know you're heading in a direction that you really do want to head and not just for the sake of it yeah that's right i mean that's exactly what you've done obviously you didn't know where where your this was going to go having you know this idea of podcast did you yeah you start with one yeah, exactly how see how people respond you can't possibly know. You can't possibly know anything about anything anyway. So yeah, precisely. Ah, lessons yeah. to live by. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Abby. This has been, you know, really interesting. So inspiring. You know, just yeah, learning about all these things that can be done, and just being able to see all the yeah. possibilities and all the things that people are actually doing out there to make a difference, and even you know from from their own backyard. And it's, that's great. It's great to see and hear about all these things that can be done. There's a lot that can be done. We've all got a lot of work to do. But, but work doesn't need to be hard. Work can be fun. Exactly. You can always enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. So if people would like to learn more about you and what you do, how can they, where can they find out? They can jump on my website, Michelle, which is um, kidsconnectingnature.com.au. Um, but that's where my um, links to my book are and there's information about me and also my um, workshops that I do in school. So that's one option. And the other thing is if they want to learn more about the Jane Goodall Institute, which is um, which looks after roots and shoots, they can jump on to the roots and shoots um, website in Australia as well. So yeah. two, two good options. Excellent. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much. And congratulations again on being shortlisted for those two wonderful awards for your book. Oh, thank you. I know. So exciting. Oh my gosh. So exciting. See, I didn't know that was going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Who knew you were going to be it. like, yeah, shortlisted like that. That's great. <laughs> well, I didn't even know if I was going to 
decent look at that point. It's like, oh, it's <laughs> a try. Yeah. So that's another one. I can do anything until proven otherwise. I mean, there's a lot of proven otherwise in my life, don't get me wrong, but I'll give things a crack. <laughs> oh, yeah, but, you know, not everything's going to pan out, but you won't know until you give it a go. That's it. That's it. Well, thank you again, and it's been wonderful to have you on. And yeah, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks, Michelle. With all the things happening around us, it's easy to see why eco-anxiety is becoming more common. But as Abby said, being able to educate in these areas can also give us hope to act, even if it's just in your own local environment. It's why programs like Kids Connecting Nature and Roots and Shoots are so important to be able to teach us more about our relationship with the environment and to find actionable ways to improve and develop that relationship. To learn more about Abby and what we discuss on this show, or to connect with us, please visit the Steam Powered website at steampoweredshow.com. You can also find out more about Abby's work on her website at kidsconnectingnature.com.au and about Roots and Shoots at rootsandshoots.org.au. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to hear more like it, subscribe to this podcast and share this with your geeky or geek curious friends. You can also support Steam Powered on Patreon and Ko-fi under Steam Powered Show the links for which will also be in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.